Yes, hello, welcome to chapter seven of the dubious book of famous deeds. My name's Paul Bates, I'm your host for this history podcast where we learned about people from as recently as the 19th century to all the way back in antiquity through the eyes of the Victorian era 1889 book, The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. The men are obscure, the deeds are questionable, but as always, I'm here to shed a modern light on whatever the subject may be. I'm very excited. This episode, we're learning about Thomas Edison. Now, at the time of this book's writing, Edison was still a young man. There was a lot of hype about what he was doing. He was an amazing self-promoter, and he had not yet completed his work with the electric light bulb, which helped lead to electric light in homes all over the world. So he was a big deal at the time. And as you might imagine, this book gushes over him. My guest, however, hates his guts. We're going to get into the many reasons why in this episode, as well as some bonus content that if you want, you can listen to right when you're done this podcast. So please welcome actor, writer, and award-winning sketch comedian, Carson Pinch. Wow. Wow, thank you for that that intro. That was probably one of the better intros I've ever received. Thanks. What do you think is the worst intro you've ever received? Someone called me Carlson one time. <laughs> 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 that that wasn't the best. Okay, I want to just say why you're here for this podcast. Yep. Normally, I don't tell my guests who were researching, but two messages that you sent me made me choose you for this. The first one goes like this. Did you know that Tesla made Mark Twain shit his pants as part of an experiment? I was intrigued. And then when I told you I was doing an episode about Thomas Edison, you said, be warned, I think he's one of history's greatest dickheads. (laughs) It's true. Both of those are, are very true. Objectively true in your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're not talking about Tesla. No. No, we're not. This is a pre-Tesla timeline, this book. This particular chapter has been written, from what I can tell, before Tesla arrived from Serbia in the United States. Really? Okay, so yes. this is this is even young Edison. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is Edison at the beginning of the hype. And you know, I, I was thinking about other things that I would categorize him as, mm-hmm. and I would say that he's also innovation's greatest monster. <laughs> Wow. Oh, my gosh. These are bold, bold, bold statements to start a podcast with. Innovation's greatest monster, one of history's biggest dickheads. Yeah, we'll see if it plays out here today on this book. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, here we go. We might as well jump in, okay? This is chapter, um, gosh, I think we're up to chapter seven. Thomas Alva Edison. Thomas Alva Edison, whose name has recently become so familiar to us in connection with various astonishing inventions, was born at Milan, Erie County, Ohio, in 1847. Right. Yeah, most of that is is factual, for sure. A little skewed, uh, but also greatest inventor, lie. Incorrect. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. At his mother's knee, he received his education, or rather such education as he had acquired previous to the age of 12, when he began the battle of life as a train boy on the Grand Trunk Railroad. I didn't know this. Did you know that Grand Trunk Railroad was the namesake for 70s arena band Grand Funk Railroad? Uh, Yeah, I did know that. I did, actually. Yes. I didn't know that. I had never, I was just like, why did they call themselves that? Now I know. (laughs) Great band. Yeah. Um, some kind of wonderful. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it is the literally the only one. What is I can't think of another one. Okay. So he was a new he was a train boy. Uh, also called a, a news butcher. He sold newspapers, candy, and other things on railroad trains. He rides the rails over to Detroit and back in a day. That's his day's work. On this railway in a disused smoking saloon. He established a chemical laboratory, prosecuting his experiments while the train was in transit from place to place. 
Here also he established a printing office, and by means of some old type which he had purchased, he actually started a weekly periodical printed in the train and entitled The Grand Trunk Herald. Interesting. Edison's printing operations, as well as his chemical experiments, were, it seems, brought to an abrupt conclusion by the upsetting of a bottle containing phosphorus, which nearly set the car in flames. He set up a chemistry station on his train. Of course, trains move, and so jars are going to get knocked off of the chemical station. And in this case, it was a bottle of phosphorus, which landed and combusted and set the train car on fire while it was moving. According to the story, the conductor was so mad, he threw the chemistry lab off the train, then he threw the printing press off the train, and then he threw Thomas Edison off the train. <laughs> you saved the best for last, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I also, right. I, I, I'm envisioning this uh, a la Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Jazzy Jeff being thrown out of the out of the house. Yeah. There was like a continuing series of misadventures on that train. And at the conclusion of every one, there was a, uh, a set piece of stock footage of uh, Edison getting thrown uh, out of the car. <laughs> the same scream. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, now, I, I, I read a little bit about this, um, that, that, that he liked to play around with lead battery acid. Uh, and and this was kind of what led to this uh, uh, sulfuric spill uh, on the train car. Uh, (laughs) You you are making it sound much worse than (laughs) than how it was just described. Well, I mean, it just sounds like, like one of those kids that was like doing stuff that he should not doing you know he has a magnifying glass and he's burning ants he's like playing around with battery acid you know (laughs) on a train car on a moving train car we're not we're not talking about the next door neighbor from toy story we're not talking about that kid (laughs) who who tears toys apart and reassembles them (laughs) reassembles them and and makes them hate their lives we're just talking about a kid who's just trying to learn things He's, he's bettering himself uh, you say bettering himself. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you know. E- you evil think worsening the planet. Purpose, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's keep going. Uh, okay. Shortly after this, becoming intimate with some telegraph operators at Detroit, his attention was directed to electrical science, in connection with which he was afterwards destined to make so many discoveries. Incorrect. Fact, factually incorrect. <laughs> okay. All right. At this time, he conceived the happy idea of telegraphing the headings of the newspapers in advance to the different towns on the line. Mm-hmm. Unlooked for success attended his efforts. I disagree with that. I think he was looking for a profit. The Civil War was in full swing. And when there were battles of note, he would telegraph down the line the headlines of what happened at the battles drum up interest in the story, then buy a thousand copies of the Detroit Free Press and sell them at a profit at every stop on the train line. Wow. See, this this is why I think he is innovation's greatest monster because he, like, he manipulates the situation around him for his benefit at all points. And really, he's not, he's not exactly doing the work per se Carson that's called moxie <laughs> I yeah at the time yes it was called moxie for sure <laughs> yes this is like sending uh, 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 creating bots and sending out tweets on mass he's basically getting something trending yeah he is he's ahead of the curve here I don't know. I I think I admire this. He's like, I can sell these papers at a premium the farther away from the source of the newspaper I get. It makes sense. Right. And there are there's an argument to be made that you can do these things and use them for good. Uh, In in my reading of Thomas Edison, he's often using these things for 
uh, uh, own personal gain. He, from this time, devoted the principal part of his time to telegraphy. He was greatly assisted in this by one of the railway officials whose child he had saved from a terrible death by an act of personal heroism. I, 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 I did hear about this beforehand, this, this act of, of saving uh, a life on, on the, the train car. Um, Jimmy I, McKenzie is the boy's right, name. Right, right, right. Let's not dehumanize this child whose life was saved by Thomas Edison. Now, here's, but here's my question about it. Why did this boy need to be saved? Was it perhaps? <laughs> okay, for you're not saying this did happen. You're putting out the possibility that he placed, he coerced this child. He left some toys out yep. on a railroad track and waited yep. for a car, a, a train car, to be backing up to connect to another train. Waited until the last possible minute and then ran in, scooped up the child's, and saved that child's life. It's not out of the realm of possibility. What I'm saying is that maybe it was a part of an experiment. Like, how long can I leave this boy on the rail path <laughs> oh before he's in, in immediate danger? This is that's even more. I was describing a like a false flag situation, but you you are saying this was part of a, a a monstrous experiment. It's not the only time he has put other people in harm's way for his own uh, experiments and, and insight into the world. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay. But that is a bold accusation, honestly, a bold <laughs> accusation that Thomas Edison would <laughs> callously observe a toddler in danger for the merits of his own scientific edification. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> After much uphill work and many disappointments, the year 1870 found Edison... At New York, without employment, he uh, was penniless at the time. His friend lets him stay over at his place of work, which is the New York Gold Indicator Company, which tracked the price of gold. And uh, the owner of this company, I think his name was Mr. Laws, had built his own gold indicator. It was like a, a precursor to the stock ticker where everybody could connect to this thing and find out what the price of gold was at any time. Um, so he's sleeping there for a few nights, and during the days, he's amusing himself by looking at the machines. It so happened that about this time, the apparatus at the office of the Gold Indicator Company, which was so old and faulty that it was constantly out of order, suddenly failed entirely. Edison boldly volunteered to put things to rights. His offer was accepted, he found the defect, and his work was resumed after a short delay. He was rewarded with an important post on the staff of the company. From this time, he prospered. Okay, I'm, I'm going to cut in. I'm going to cut in right here. Uh, okay. See, here's what you're telling me. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, Edison was like living in the walls of this uh, uh, place of business. That is what I'm saying. And somehow in that time, there's a a great defect oh my god i see where you're going with this <laughs> that that inflicts the machine and the only person who can fix it is thomas edison that's a lot of coincidences you are saying that thomas edison comes to new york by design with no money in his pockets says hey can i crash at your place of work the gold indicator company studies the machines sabotages the main gold indicator and swoops in at the right time and says i thomas edison can fix your indicator machine all you need to do is put in this spring which handily is in my pocket right now and then it'll start working again and lo and behold, it does. People are amazed. Money comes his way. Uh, he has manipulated the situation around him. 
to suit his benefit. Finding that the ties of regular business hours interfered too much with the time he wished to employ in research, Edison gave up his appointment, and three years ago removed with his family to Menlo Park, which is about 24 miles from New York. He moved his operations there in 1876. Yeah. So this is three years ago from the time of this writing. Now, had he become the wizard of Menlo Park yet? He's about to. He moves, <laughs> he moves to Menlo Park, and soon he becomes known as the wizard of Menlo Park. What an asshole. What an asshole. Turning on switches and pulling levers, making things explode, trying things out, constantly experimenting, plumes of smoke rising from uh, the top of the building, weird sounds, nobody sees him. He's a strange wizard who has moved into this small New Jersey community. Right, and this is the perception of it. Yes. The actual historical nature of his, his time there is, is much different. Right, yeah, he's sitting on a throne made of stone, surrounded by a <laughs> moat of lava, uh, brooding, constantly brooding, <laughs> looking through a portal at young Nikola Tesla, like wanting to steal his life force, destroy him, sending robot crows after him to spy on him, things like that. Correct. That's what I'm saying. No, I, 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 I think he actually had a much more boring and administrative uh, role in, in in all of his doings in Menlo Park. Uh, it, it's far more an overseer, uh, someone who delegates everything. And, and you know, this is where he, I do think he does invent something huge that has far-reaching ramifications for how science works and how uh, all industries work. He doesn't invent, like, the light bulb. He doesn't invent the gramophone. He doesn't invent all these other things. Other people do that. What he invents is research and development. Yes. It's the first, Menlo Park is the world's first R&D facility. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That's all he does. Okay. For better and for worse. It is a cool uh, development to, to come up with a lab that's just about coming up with, with stuff. It's the first of its kind, and that's kind of cool. Right. It is kind of cool, but it also was less sophisticated than it sounds. We think about the light bulb. He just took someone else's designs, uh, Joseph Swan's, and he needed to innovate a new filament for it. And basically, he just used whatever he could to make the filament until they happened upon something that worked. Like, there wasn't much rhyme or reason behind the decisions that they made. He's like, I've got all this stuff left over from my chemistry lab and my train. Let's try every single thing. <laughs> Phosphorus is off the list. Sorry, guys, I broke that jar. I, I got all this. I got all this battery acid around. Let's. <laughs> I got let's some see. sulfuric acid. That's most. That's for my enemies. But <laughs> we we can use anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You know, science never happens in a vacuum, right? We like correct. Uh, nobody is out there doing it by themselves, walking out of a lab, taking their goggles off and saying, I did it. It's always the work of lots and lots and lots of people. All right. I forgot where we are. Got it. <laughs> OK, here at Menlo Park, here far away from the din of city life, he has built a laboratory and workshop which are stocked with all the newest appliances and labor-saving machines. Here, too, is kept a sample of every known chemical agent, just like on the train, phosphorus is off the list, sorry, in case at any time it might be required for experiment. Edison has already been granted some 120 patents. Now, Carson, mm -hmm. do you know how many patents Edison got in his entire life? Oh, probably that, that, uh, hundred, tens of thousands. A thousand and ninety-three. Uh, millions. No, one thousand. <laughs> oh, one, there's a bit of a lag. What? Uh, I think one thousand ninety-three is the answer. Total patents, and he, okay. he is still holds the record. He has the most patents to his name of anybody since. Do you want to know now, or do you want to know later? Some of my favorite miscellaneous patents that Edison took out. Hit me. So. 
He's got like a 389 for the electric power, uh, 195 for the phonograph, 150 for the telegraph, 141 for storage batteries. What are the 184 other patents? Well, 49 were for cement. Later in his life, he was oh. huge into cement. Oh, yeah. No, I heard about this. I heard about this, and I, it's so dumb. Do you, know, <laughs> do you know about why he wanted the cement? Is it the single poor home? Yeah, well, the Singapore home, not only that, but mm-hmm. he thought that the new, the next great innovation was going to be cement furniture. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, cement furniture, and also cement pianos. Jesus Christ. And, and, and they didn't, they crumbled. They of didn't work. Of course they did. Yes. <laughs> How many cushions are you going to need for a cement <laughs> couch? The single poor home also fascinated me, that you would build a framework for a house, mm-hmm. and then at the top, just keep pouring concrete until you <laughs> build a hard uh, uh, house frame. But the actual frame was so cost prohibitive that no one would ever do it. Right. Uh, and, and there are homes nowadays that actually do use this. Mm, yeah. Method. So he presaged it a little bit, but at the exactly. time, yeah. Yeah. Um, Fifty-three patents in mining and ore milling, including the magnetic ore separator. Nine in motion pictures, and right. uh, fifty in miscellany, including a fruit preserver, various bullets, the electrographic <laughs> vote recorder. Now, here's a device that actually worked. It would instantly collect votes. You know, as people do now and like, you know, in uh, City Hall, like people vote yay or nay and it comes up automatically. Right. Right. Um, so he took this to the House of Representatives and says, like, this is going to speed up your voting process. And they were like, absolutely not. We don't want it. We would lose all our chance to lobby for votes. They wanted the process to be slow so that they could lobby and deal. Interesting. Okay. Uh, now, I'm just saying that, you know, if if you were to patent something that made it easy and instantaneous for uh, legislators to vote on something important, uh, it could also be pretty easy to manipulate that. <laughs> and... In the hands of master manipulator, psychopath <laughs> Thomas Edison. He could bend bend the laws to his uh, own design. Finally, my personal favorite, the vocal engine. What? It was a motor attached to a mouthpiece and a diaphragm. You would yell into the mouthpiece, <laughs> and the vibrations from the diaphragm would make the motor slowly go. And I just want you to imagine the dystopian hellscape where this <laughs> took off. Everyone's living in their concrete houses, yep. plunking on their concrete pianos, while somebody <laughs> in the family is in charge of screaming all day long to keep the power going in the house. <laughs> Entire cities just powered by people screaming 24-7. <laughs> And there would be the, the, you know, the screaming fields we'd all work in. <laughs> Not in my backyard. I don't want a screaming field built in my backyard. Uh, yeah, I heard they give you cancer. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll get into more of Edison's achievements, including electric light. And we'll begin to unpack Carson's deep, almost aggressive dislike for Thomas Edison. We're back. Just a reminder that uh, this is a history podcast, but I'm not a historian or a scholar. Uh, It took me hours and hours to try and learn about electricity, electromagnetism while I was researching Thomas Edison. If you heard anything in this podcast and you have any information to share or questions or anything at all, shoot me an email, famousdeeds at gmail.com or find me at famousdeeds on Twitter. If you're listening, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, back to Carson Pinch versus Thomas Edison. So he had already been granted some 120 patents. 
But the machine with which his fame is principally identified is the speaking phonograph, for its wonders are more attractive to the general public than his inventions of a far more important character. The speaking phonograph. Now, there's two things about this. One, you're going to say he didn't make it. Which is partially true, yeah. Well, he didn't make the gramophone. No, he, he absolutely did not, yeah. Just as he improved on somebody else's ideas with electricity, somebody improved on his a great deal. But as far as I know, Thomas Edison and one of his assistants are the first ones to ever reproduce a voice, which at that time, voice was ephemeral. No one had ever heard a voice recorded back. Exactly. The speaking phonographs wonders are more attractive to the general public than his inventions of a far more important character. Among these latter, we may mention the quadruplex telegraph, by which four different messages may be simultaneously sent along a single wire. The electric pen, the carbon rheostat and microtessimeter, the electric motograph, and its outcome, the loudspeaking telephone. How far... On the wrong side of history is this book that they are saying that the reproduction of sound is not the single greatest of his inventions. <laughs> I mean, the authors of this book are saying, <laughs> yes, fine, fine. You reproduced sound. We can now record music and hear right. it back. But why are we not spending more time on the quadruplex telegraph? Can we add, do you know what the quadruplex telegraph is? Yes, it is... An innovation, not an invention. <laughs> it is an innovation okay. of the technology invented by Julius Gintel and J.B. Stearns. They made a thing that could send two simultaneous signals in opposite directions via telegraph. Mm -hmm. Edison was able to double that. Yeah, it's, so, it's so interesting that he was into sending things back and forth, but, but not current. <laughs> not current. <laughs> That's... That is a solid ACDC burn. <laughs> I love it. You know, anybody who is into electrical energy at all is going to be like, uh-huh, yep, oh, snap. How, how quickly do things become old hat, you know? Mm. I, I remember the first time that I saw someone pick up uh, the, like they had a screen in front of them, uh, a computer screen, and they used their fingers to stretch an image. And oh, I, I, yeah, I, re I remember that it blowing my mind the very first time I saw that. And I think the next week I was like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we are all, and if we don't, I feel like there's something dead in us that we all have something like that where our uh, our minds are blown through the backs of our heads in my adult <laughs> life two times has my mind been completely blown first one was by the notion of the world wide web and the second one uh was wi-fi discovering that i could connect to the internet while not plugging a single thing into my computer and honestly it's still blows my mind <laughs> right yeah. yeah i mean uh being a little a tad a tad younger mm -hmm. those were things that i i was like no 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 give that to me <laughs> that should already be invented uh wireless for sure uh okay all right let's keep going we may now surmise that Edison's chief efforts are now directed to the production of the electric light for domestic use the various electric machines and lamps, which are now employed with a varying measure of success, are thus described by an American writer. Now, I couldn't figure out who this American writer is. I don't know where this text comes from, but what is essentially happening for the rest of this chapter is they have copy and pasted somebody else's article in, and now we're just reading a completely different piece of writing. This book is just absurd. <laughs> I, I cannot... It's... It's all over the map with its logic. It's great. So now I feel like I have to change my voice <clears throat> uh, for this other part. <laughs> for some time past, the public, like a schoolboy on an insulating stool, has been so highly charged with the electric light that, so to speak, each individual hair has stood on end with 
a curiosity, if not with electricity. There are a lot of electricity puns in this paragraph. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Gas stocks, after the fashion of the pithballs on an electrical machine, have gone a-dancing up and down under the influence of this mysterious agent. Oh my god. Gentle reader, join us in an excursion to the laboratory and- oh, sorry, it's American- to the laboratory, and though it be dark and dingy, noisy and dirty, with its busy engine and maze of belts and wheels and shafts, see if we cannot make the electricity give us some- light on the subject jesus christ that sucks so hard i i will say it's a great great voice oh thank you thank you i yeah. worked hard on that <laughs> well. great character actor paul bates um now that sucks so hard uh but i also have a bunch of questions about it okay uh number one what is an insulating chair that schoolboys sit on <laughs> I feel like this is something that you would sit on at the science center. Right, yeah, yeah. That's what that this is what I was imagining. That the 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 metal ball that you touch that makes your hair stand on end, right? The best part of any school trip. Uh okay. A number of years ago, Faraday and Arago, that's uh noted physicists Michael Faraday and Francois Arago. I am familiar. I've with You're the familiar. Faraday and okay. Arago. Um, discovered two principles which opened a new and almost infinite field in electrical science and enabled this age of machinery to invent a machine for producing electricity. All of the magnetoelectric machines, as they are called, are based on these two laws, which, and now for a dry bit of fact, are as follows. If a piece of insulated wire be coiled around a rod of iron and an electric current be allowed to pass through the wire, the iron will become a magnet so long as the current flows. And conversely, if the wire-covered rod be moved to and fro near a magnet so as to be influenced by its magnetism, currents of electricity will be produced in the wire so long as the motion is continued. Why this is so, no one knows. <laughs> right, right, okay. Uh, well, first of all, um, utterly transformed by that character. Uh, lo thank love you. It, love it so much. Bless, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. What, a, what an actor. I spent hours and days trying to understand <laughs> electromagnetic force. You you went deep. What I didn't understand, and what I don't think they understand in this book, is that electricity and magnetism are two sides of the same coin. It's not. It's electromagnetism. It's not two different things. Right. And so that's how dynamos worked in this day. You would move a magnet constantly, mechanically, so you would need a battery to power it or some other energy to power it. You would move a magnet around, and the more the magnetic field moves in various ways, the more current is created in your wire, in your loop of wire. And that right. is how they made electricity in the day. Yeah. So, the scientists, mm -hmm. si oh, my, back to mm -hmm. my voice. The scientists learnedly call it magnetic induction, but here their knowledge ends. And if we adopt the term, we shall be as wise as they. But enough of science, and here is the laboratory. Oh, and here is the laboratory. A door swings open. Through the busy room past lathes and planers and milling machines, all filled with the curious possibilities of future machinery, we make our way to the corner devoted to electricity. And a queer place it is. Here on a long wooden bench, the scarlet and vermilion forms of a dozen of the most prominent machines gleam brightly against the white wall of the building while overhead the ceiling is crossed and recrossed with a maze of wire till it seems as if some huge arachnid had amused itself by spinning complicated problems in geometry. And that's my nightmare, a smart giant spider. <laughs> what comes next in this book like a full half of this chapter is now devoted i'm not going to read it it's now devoted to describing in detail 
every single electrical generating device in his laboratory. He talks about the Maxim, the Western, the Graham machine. Does it mention x-rays and how he killed a man? <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been waiting? To just... I've been holding on to it. It's <laughs> chomping at the bit <laughs> to get it out. No, no, there's no mention. I'd love if there was a casual mention, but I want to hear. Let's let's wait till the end. I want to hear sure. about how. Uh, I believe someone lost both his arms or something like that. And life. And life. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Thus briefly. We have seen the outlines of the principles involved in machinery for producing electricity. Let us inquire, after a little breathing space, how the current shall be utilized for illumination, the problem which so many are now waiting anxiously to be solved. So at the time of this writing, there are still no usable solutions for electric lighting in domestic homes. There are arc lamps outside uh, yep. that use the arc yep. lighting, two pieces of carbon, and there's that bzz, is that buzzing bolt of, mm -hmm. of uh, electricity happening between them that are too harsh and too loud and too inconsistent for, uh, for use at home. And so the, the task at hand is to try and come up with a light bulb that is usable indoors for long periods of time. And before the arc lamp, of course, people were using gaslight, which has its own problems. It's too dim. It smells bad. Here's my question. It, this is making it seem like the whole world knows that some sort of illuminating uh, discovery will happen and we're just waiting for it. And then the whole world will be lit. I don't think that's the case. Uh, in actuality. You don't think that the world was waiting for this? I, I think people were fine how they were. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, people got along. Everybody gets along. I think Edison started to become famous. He's the Wizard right. of Menlo Park. The Wizard of Menlo Park, right? yeah. What's he doing? Well, he's building, like, you know, can you, like, are you going to win the golden ticket to get into Menlo Park and go for a tour and then get taught, you know, morality lessons as your children get, you know, taken away in <laughs> uh, rivers of lava and sulfuric acid? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so word is starting to spread in newspapers. And I think what's happening is the American media is pumping a lot of hype into Edison. That's the mainstream media for you. I only say this because in my research, I somehow happened upon a letter to the editor of Nature magazine, November 21st, 1878. Wow. It's somebody talking about the chances of Edison making electric light for domestic use. And specifically, it's discussing, okay, yes, you can make a light bulb, but can you power say 20, 100 light bulbs at once. Can you power a whole home? Can you power a whole building, right? Right. This guy says, look, somebody has already made the incandescent light bulb. Like already then, and probably more then than now, Edison is not credited as the inventor of the light bulb. And then he's got this right. one quote that I'm going to read. The reports in the American daily press show such an effervescent ignorance of the fundamental principles, both of electricity and of dynamics, that no reliance whatever can be placed upon them. Wow. So it was in the media. The mainstream media. The MSM. Thus far, in all the lamps we have examined, the light is obtained by the passage of the current between two points of carbon. There is, however, another way, which consists of forcing it in through a thin strip or wire of platinum or other infusible substance. Oh, no, I haven't even been using my American voice. Which is a poor <laughs> conductor of electricity. As between the carbon points, so in passing through the wire, the current is, in some manner not well understood, converted into heat, and raising the wire to a white heat causes it to give a pure, steady light. This is called the incandescent light, and is the plan adopted by Mr. Edison. I don't know if uh, it's the voice... I actually, I'm pretty sure it's a voice, but I don't know if it's my own like stereotypical uh, uh, views on uh, uh, on voices and dialects and accents. But uh, when you put that on, I automatically don't believe a word you're saying. <laughs> 
I'll, rem- I'll have to remember that. Uh, <laughs> Edison, his innovation seems to have been what filament to use. And if I'm getting this right, I don't know a yeah. lot about resistance in electricity, but what people had been doing for a long time was using material that had low resistance and mm-hmm. the bulbs were burning out fast. Edison's yeah. innovation was to use something that had higher resistance instead and tried platinum for a while, ended up using carbonized bamboo after the time of this writing, which allowed a bulb to last for about 120 hours. So 22 people made incandescent light bulbs before Edison did. Edison's innovation and commercialization of the light bulb comes from the fact that he found a way to make them last for a longer period of time. Which is just trying all the different things you could put in a light bulb until you found the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And most of it was sulfuric acid, Uh for sure. Uh, You know, what they don't say is that the thing he started with was the the fingernails of children. He, uh, (laughs) (laughs) He would collect school groups to come through Menlo Park, and then only half the children would return, and he would harness them. <laughs> Among its many triumphs, the 19th century may justly claim the electric light. Truly, its universal application may lie far in the future. Yet even now, it is largely employed and its use rapidly extending. In oil works and on shipboard, where absolute safety from fire is essential. In fabric and color factories, whose success so largely depends on the purity and richness of the supply of light. The electric light is being rapidly introduced. Beware then, O gas companies, lest your high prices for poor illumination enable even the dawn of electricity's light to fade your dim and yellow flame into a shadow of the past. Yeah, what's what's the name of this American writer? Is it Shamamis Fedison? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find it, but... As you know, Edison did go out of his way to talk up in the media the benefits of his electrical power. We know this. Oh, yes. He's quite famous for it. I think we are out of time. Is there anything you want to say on the legacy of Thomas Edison? But the main thing that I, I, I wanted to come, why I want to come on this uh, 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 podcast was to... You know, it is fun to say that Thomas Edison is like history's greatest monster. Uh, he's a great A son of a bitch. He's the world's is history's greatest dickhead. Uh, and in some ways, that is correct, uh, objectively true. But in other ways, he was also just like this kind of man who was just kind of like trying to get through. Uh, he was just trying to like take the opportunities around him. You know, you know? Uh, and for me, I think that's part of, you know, when you talk about great men, great deeds, whatever, genius, the genius to seize upon an opportunity shouldn't be understated. Like this guy from the beginning of his life could see a dollar, could see an opportunity and knew how to capitalize on it. Right. Exactly. Now, tell me about the x-rays. Okay, so this is the thing that is horrifying in a way, um, but also is a little more nuanced. Uh, I'll, I'll say it again that in this situation, Edison is the son of a bitch, but there are glimmers of him being a human being. Mm-hmm. So there's this man named Clarence Daly, who was an assistant for Edison. His trade, do you know this? Do you know what he, he was an expert in? No, I do not glass blowing a craft that famously you need your lungs for and you need your arms mm-hmm. <laughs> yep <laughs> so th- this is what he specialized in until he started working for edison uh edison was doing a bunch of testing around x-rays the way that i understand it you would like stick a part of your body into a tube and they would like throw it on uh, they give you a, an x-ray and they thought it was totally safe. There was no like, mm-hmm. when you get an x-ray today, there's no like bulletproof like a shield that you're wearing. 
nothing like that. For the first time, Thomas Edison was making this man put his arm in an x-ray tube and filling his arm with radiation. Uh, he started with his left hand because it was his non-dominated arm, left arm. And then almost immediately, like lesions, uh, uh, bad stuff's happening to his arm, starts using his right arm. <laughs> Edison's conclusion... As any person would say, was well, there's something wrong with your left arm. Exactly. You have to switch. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, gotta, yeah. That, that arm's not good enough. Obviously, we need to use your dominant Correct. Arm. Uh, Too prone to lesions. <laughs> uh, now, Edison, too, at this time, working so closely with the x-ray, did uh, encounter some medical difficulties. I heard that it almost made him blind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And he was already almost deaf. It, from scarlet fever. Mm-hmm. Well, so they say. Nobody really knows for right. sure. Correct. Uh, so this man, this poor man, who uh, all he wants to do is glass blow with his perfect two arms. Uh, Mr. Edison, <laughs> after the experiment, may I get back to blowing the glasses? I want to make a bowl for my daughter. <laughs> uh, he loses both arms. He, they have to amputate oh. it. Um, and then mm. they don't. They still don't cut off the radiation, uh, and he, the, this man tragically loses his life. Um, it's okay, Mr. Edison. I, just tell me, tell me we got the x-rays of my arms. <laughs> it, it, it's a, it, it is a tragic story, and uh, uh, he, Edison did stop after losing one man he did stop working with x-rays after mm -hmm. that and to quote uh edison i i'm scared of x-rays <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm sorry to laugh i shouldn't laugh but it's a funny way to contextualize that now i'm gonna play devil's advocate for a second and say sure 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 that they did not know at the time what radiation would do to them Right? Like the Curries died right. as well of radiation poisoning. Yeah, correct. Correct, correct, correct. If I saw a machine that was going to show me my insides, <laughs> you could not stop me from getting in that machine to... You'd stick, you'd stick your head right in. I, yeah, head first. <laughs> I would go head first into that machine. <laughs> if that was presented to me, uh, I would do it no matter what. So... Correct. Yeah. Anyways. It is tragic in that this is like the very first person to die of radiation. Mm -hmm. Edison was compassionate about it in a way. He, not enough to stop his assistant from using the x-ray machine that would take his life, but he did keep him on the payroll after uh, his death. Yes, that is true. I read that. I read that he was haunted by what happened, and he did keep him on payroll, which in the 1800s or early 1900s, probably not common, right? He was probably, right. probably felt very badly about it. With how anti-union and workers' rights Edison staunchly was. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know what my favorite part is in, the, in what I've read about Edison is the number of times people said, his workers can't wait to spend 60-hour weeks working all night for him and his amazing ideas. It's like, come on. There had to be somebody that was just like, God, I wish I could go home and see my family. Like, <laughs> there is no way that everybody was 100% behind this. Yeah. I, I do wonder how much of that was the cult of personality around this wizard of Menlo Park. Oh, well, um, if they actually thought he was a wizard. They'd probably be terrified to ask for any time right. off. <laughs> right. The only thing you do is is either hide or challenge a wizard. <laughs> there's no other. There's no in between. Uh, <laughs> so that is a dark period of his life that I think he is at fault in, but also he was compassionate after the fact. You can't make an omelet. Without <laughs> irradiating and killing some of your assistants. Yeah, that, that's what he said. It's a, a direct quote from the Joker. <laughs> My thanks to Carson for joining me on this podcast. You can find Carson at Carson Pinch on Instagram and Twitter. He's also on TikTok. Now, 
Carson and I talked a lot about Thomas Edison, and we touched on a lot of stuff. But here's the thing. When I make these episodes, I try to keep the content and the conversation limited to uh, what's covered in the book, because there really is enough to unpack and correct. But a lot of Carson's animosity to Thomas Edison is based on stories that happened after the writing of this book. Most notably, his relationship with Nikola Tesla and the actions he took to try to win the so-called War of the Currents. It's fascinating stuff. And so I've made it available in a kind of bonus episode. You'll be able to find it online the same place you found this episode. So if you want, you can check it out. We're going to hear all about the War of the Currents. And yes, we're going to hear the Mark Twain story as well. So, we'll see you over in Appendix A, Nikola Tesla and the ACDC War. The Dubious Book of Famous Deeds is produced and recorded in Toronto. It's part of the Sonar Network. Go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out the many funny and thoughtful podcasts offered there. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review. It goes a long way towards helping this show find its audience. You can subscribe as well so that you never miss an episode. Follow the podcast online at Famous Deeds on Twitter and at Famous.Deeds on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. If you want to get in touch, whether to ask questions, correct my work, lodge a complaint, or just say hi, I want to hear from you shoot an email to famousdeeds at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the work I put into researching and producing this podcast, why not buy me a coffee? You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators all over the internet. Until next time, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network.